and welcome back to Pushing the A with me, your host, Will. Getting really confident with three episodes in, and I'm already... I got this, guys. I'm, I own the podcast game. I own the niche market of ABUS History Podcasters recorded by high school students in their bedrooms on Saturday nights when all their friends are out partying. Uh, in case that didn't give you a uh, general... <laughs> Outlook on my life. Okay. Um. My notes here start with talking a little bit about um, some martial cases, which we can go through in a bit. But first, just where we left off is the Monroe Doctrine. Um, James Monroe, President of the United States for a while, at least eight years. And by at least eight years, I mean exactly eight years. What a mess this is. Um, the Monroe Doctrine happens. 1812 is over. Um, War of 1812. The year 1812 is also over. Federalists are dead. Hamilton is dead. Jefferson has gone through presidency. Marshall's on the court. Got a few, I guess, catch, catchstone, touchstone cases. Um, Marbury versus Madison, Judicial Review. Fletcher versus Peck, which is states and contracts, as well as Dartmouth, McCulloch versus Maryland, which is taxing the bus, Cohen's versus VA, Virginia, for you imbeciles out there, uh, which is state decisions can be reviewed by the Supreme Court, Cohen's, or Gibbons versus Ogden, which is the U.S. Supreme Court, or the U.S. House of Representatives, rather, has the power to oversee interstate trade versus the states themselves, and Worcester versus Virginia versus Georgia, all over the place today, folks. Um, Worcester versus Georgia, which is the Cherokee Nation gets a lawyer to represent them, um, and basically it's ruled that Georgia and Andrew Jackson cannot kick them out. They, you can't sue them, um... They initially couldn't sue the United States because they're a foreign nation, um, but the new decision with an American representing them says that Georgia has no power over them, to which Andrew Jackson says, okay, watch me now. All right, Corrupt Bargain of 1824. 1824 is where we are. This is chapter 13, which has a name. We don't have the time to name it, though, because we're those kind of guys. Guy. Um, 1824 is the final old-style election. Um, it's ends in this four-way Republican tie between John Quincy Adams, Henry Clay, William Henry Crawford, and Andrew Jackson. Now, John Quincy Adams, Henry Clay, William Henry Crawford, Andrew Jackson, through those four names you've heard before, the fourth Crawford you haven't, because the guy gets a stroke at a really inopportune time, um, and essentially pulls himself out of the race via that. So the House decides who's the president now. Um, Clay is the speaker, so automatically he can't really can't really say i'm the speaker of the house and by coincidence the house has chosen me to be the president what a what a surprise i'm shocked and awed um so it's a choice between john quincy adams and andrew jackson clay decides because clay really is the person deciding the rest of the house will just follow him clay decides it's going to be john quincy adam because he likes him enough and freaking hates andrew jackson and clay as some see it very conveniently gives uh, or gets the position of Secretary of State in what some people call the corrupt bargain trademark of corrupt bargain industries. Um, Andrew Jackson supporters cannot believe what just happened. 
Um, and it's really the end of this idea of the president can be choosed by behind closed doors. It's the beginning of this common man election theme where it more relies on the people, which is ultimately what the Constitution... Maybe it didn't envision that, but it, it seemed inevitable, and I think that was the last push. Um, so John Adams, John Quincy Adams, rather. Who is he? Uh, son of John Adams, as indicated by the Q. United States folklore says that if you're the second child of someone, you have to have a Q in your middle name. I am Will Q. Smith second. Second is also in there. Um, he's socially inadept, which I can relate to. He's a thinker and not a politician. The public doesn't like him. He's unpopular. He's the one of the first minority presidents. Not that he's a minority, but that most of the country doesn't support him. So he spends most of his time in office. Um, he spends it building a lot of infrastructure, and the South is not a fan. Um, westward expansion is continuing on, but John Quincy Adams is like, okay, you can keep expanding westward. What you can't keep doing is speculating on these lands, which seems like it's making the economy really volatile, to which people say, it's it's fine, don't worry about it. And Adams says, no, it's not. And people say, you know, it's fine. Um, he also tries to deal with the Cherokees fairly, which is admirable, because future presidents aren't going to do that. Don't want to name names. Andrew Jackson don't want to name them. Um, immediately after Adams wins, Jackson starts campaigning again, uh, and there's a split in the Democratic-Republican Party, where it becomes the National Republicans Party of Adams versus the Democratic-Republicans Party of Jackson. It's the frontiersmen versus the aristocrat in Jackson versus Adams. Um, there's... This doesn't make sense. Um, there's a movement in the Democratic Republicans that's like, stop buying... Oh, that is an H, not an 8. That would do it. Stop buying stuff for the White House. Um, also, there's a rumor that John Quincy Adams is a pimp, I think, which is odd. That could be completely factless and an error in my notes, so do not, like, don't go if... This is on the assumption that someone's actually listening to this, but do not go into your history class and be like, hey, Mr. Teacher, did you hear about John Quincy Adams? You know what? I'm going to Google it because this is... <laughs> um, 10 things you might know might not know about John Quincy Adams on history.com. Um, died on the same day. No monument to Adams. Uh, okay, here we go. Um, campaign propaganda paid for by Jefferson charged that Adams was a hideous hermaphroditical character who smuggled prostitutes into the country from England. Okay, so there were claims like that. Good, <laughs> glad to know that that didn't happen. Um, or that did happen, that there's some, something behind that. Um, <laughs> all of which is to say... Jackson wins in 1828 with the West and the South and the Middle. The Old Northwest um, is really the divider. Adams wins the North and most of the East. Um, when they recalibrate the Electoral College to represent the new population totals, um, Andrew Jackson has won in a landslide. So, uh, El Presidente Jackson. Um, that, that, my notes are 
really screwed up for this chapter. I'm sorry to listeners. It's okay. Here we go. This makes sense. All right, <laughs> back to it. Um, Jackson is a tall orphan who moved from North Carolina, became a judge in Tennessee, then went to Congress, and is the first president from the West and the first to be nominated in a party convention. Um, he invites a bunch of his pals to the inauguration, where they all get in a fight. It was pretty nasty. The spoil system is how he builds his cabinet. His supporters, uh, if you support him publicly and you're important, you get public office. Um, they say, we need new blood, these people have been here for ages, which is partially true. The last major staff turnover was eight, in 1800, so if you're, I don't know, if you were 50 and came into the White House in 1800, you're 75. Um, by the time, uh, by the time Adams takes over, you're 80, basically, by the time Jackson takes over, so you're, they're really old. Um, it's done the wrong way, though. It's unfair, it rewards the wrong people, but it creates this notion that if you stick with your party, you will get rewarded for it in the end. U.S. industry in the Jackson administration really wants a protective tariff, um... There is one. They want more. New England and the Middle States are saying this is good, but the exports are sort of all turned around. Jackson is like, actually, this isn't good. So he presents a higher tariff to Congress and says, if they shut it down, then this will shut down the tariff, and then they accidentally pass it. Because, obviously. Um... The South is like, holy crap, what have you done? Andrew Jackson says, I am so sorry. Uh, there are worries about slavery, there are worries about the North and the South, and they need a scapegoat. So, with that in mind, they choose the tariff. Things are already going badly in the South, and so they choose a tariff. To clarify that last sentence, there are worries about slavery. The British West Indies um, is having an anti-slave movement. It's all going badly in the South. They need something to blame it on, so they choose this tariff. They call it the Tariff of Abominations. Um, South Carolina, in particular, gets really pissed. Um, they protest. They're like, this discrimination. John C. Calhoun says, this is unconstitutional, and therefore it is null and void, leading to the term nullies, nullifiers. Um, and South Carolina can pass a two-thirds vote to nullify the tariff in South Carolina. And there are a few unionists remaining in the South Carolina legislature, and they block it until 1832, which is this nullification crisis. Um, then another election happens, and the nullies win a bunch of South Carolina seats. They call another convention. They repeal the tariff of abominations. Um, and if you try to collect it, they say, we will leave the union. Andrew Jackson says, okay, I didn't try to screw you over, but this is not... No, you you don't get to do this. So, he sends the Navy and the Army. Um, South Carolina makes a proclamation. The United States makes a counter-proclamation. Everyone's proclaiming things. Um, Henry Clay, who's anti-Andrew Jackson and a Kentucky senator, comes up with this compromise, which is that it's going to go down 10%. Um... Not all at once, but it'll go down a little by little until 1842, and it'll reach uh, 1833 levels. But they also pass a bill accompanying it called the Force Bill, which is the military has to collect the tariffs if if they, if a state is not paying its tariffs, the military are the ones who have to collect it, or who get to collect it, one might say. So the U.S. is still expanding uh, while all this is happening. 
There are 125,000 natives east of the Mississippi River, but those natives are in the way uh, per the expansioners and the settlers. Um, the U.S. gets into this nasty pattern of making a treaty, then violating it, then making a treaty and violating it. They're trying to Christianize the tribes, which isn't really happening, except for what they call the five civilized, which are the Cherokee, the Choctaw, the Creeks, the Chickasaw, the Chickasaw, and the Seminoles. The white people don't care if they're civilized or not, which they were, and even if they weren't, who gives a crap, um, because they want the land. So the Cherokees have taken this whole idea of sort of Christianizing, Christianizing themselves to a logical extreme, or not to a logical extreme, to a place where it's like, where you can do this too, so they make a council. Georgia says, actually, this is illegal, um, and then they give themselves the rights to the land. John Marshall says, this is uh, Worcester versus Georgia, John Marshall says, no. Andrew Jackson says, okay, watch me. So they voluntarily, uh, the Cherokees voluntarily emigrate going west to keep their culture. Uh, by 1830, 100,000 have been uprooted. This is the Indian Removal Act that transports mainly those five civilized tribes that, you know, the, the, the missionaries and the people hoping to reconcile with the Indians were so proud of that mainly, moves, mainly moves them west. It extirpates them from their homes and says, sorry, this is our land now. So, this is a lot of people that you have to force west, and there are no cars, there are no planes, there's no, it's not really carriages. I mean, there are, but there's not wagons, I guess. Um, it's this forced march out west. There are probably, there are probably wagons. I want to, I want to emphasize that there are almost certainly wagons, but they walked is the main point. Um, it's called the Trail of Tears because so many people die on it, they also, the United States also establishes the Bureau of Indian Affairs, where they say your rights are going to be guaranteed out west. It sets a precedent, though, and the U.S. goes west again in 15 years and breaks the treaty. Some try and stop it. Some Indians try and resist. Uh, the Blackhawks with the Fox and the Sauk Braves. This is called the Black Hawk War, where Abraham Lincoln and Jefferson Davis fight on the same side. Um, the Seminoles try and escape to the Everglades, but then their leader is captured and they are moved to Oklahoma. Uh, overall, not a great move by Andrew Jackson, but unsurprisingly at the time, not the least popular thing he did. That's next. Jackson's biggest blunder. It was not the Indian Removal Act, although that's why popular culture does not enjoy him on the $20 bill today. Instead, it mainly surrounded the bank of the United States. Um, Andrew Jackson has this fundamental distrust in big business and monopolies on banks. Moreover, the bank isn't issuing paper money. This is the Bank of the United States. It's got a lot of power. It's acting basically like the government. It's only accountable, though, to its investors. Um, and the president of the bank has way too much power, which leads to the Bank War of 1832. Clay and Webster are hoping to make the bank an issue for the next election because its charter comes up in 1836. Um, they bring up the Bank of U.S. is charter and they say let's renew it now uh, and they ram it through congress and andrew jackson can either veto it or sign it if he signs it he alienates his followers or if he vetoes it he alienates the east clay and webster's key misunderstanding though is that the east is no longer the majority 
Andrew Jackson can win the election without winning the North and the East. So he vetoes it. He says it's unconstitutional. And this actually increases the power of the executive branch because it's not because, like, it's unconstitutional. It's because he says it's unconstitutional. And so that gives the president sort of some... The president gives gets some power over the Constitution and laws and congressional acts there. So the year is 1832. Henry Clay decides, okay, enough of this Jackson business, I'm gonna run. And then the third group, the anti-Masonic, Masonic? Masonic Masons are what they are against, but the anti-Mason order, we're just gonna call it that. There's an IC at the end of Mason, but pretend it doesn't exist for the moment. Jackson is a Mason, uh, which is this group of people. And what you need to know is that Jackson is a member. Um, moral and religious reforms are a big part of this election. Andrew Jackson spends most of it talking about small government. Both sides, also the Masons, have, the anti-Masons, have a national convention and a party platform. Clay gets a lot of Bank of the United States money, and he pays papers, newspapers to say bad stuff about Jackson. Uh, Jackson wins anyway with the South, the West, Pennsylvania, and New York by over 100,000 votes. The president of this bank is Mr. Biddle. Um, it's due to expire 1836. Andrew Jackson says, you know what, I just got a mandate to get rid of this bank after winning the election in 1832, so I'm going to end it now. Uh, Biddle tries to keep it alive. Andrew Jackson says, you know what, we're going to remove our federal deposits. Um, and his treasury secretaries say, are you high? Why would you do that? Um, so he fires his treasury secretary, and then he hires another to withdraw the federal deposits. To which he says, are you high? Why would you do that? So he fires him. And then finally, finally, the third one's like, okay, you're the boss. Um... With that in mind, Biddle calls back his loans of the Bank of the United States, and there's a huge financial crisis that's triggered. Some banks are done in. Um, a financial vacuum is just left there, and a cycle of booms and busts occurs. Jackson, though, doesn't really care. He moves funds into state banks that are mainly pro-Andrew Jackson. They're called pet banks. Um, some of those are wildcat banks, which are just sort of banks out west that don't really know what's going on and just say, we're going to do whatever we want. Thanks. Uh, they flood the market with paper money and it makes the currency so unreliable that the species circulatory is issued, which basically says you can no longer buy land with paper money. It has to be bought with metal. Um, and that is really, and that's really the end of the mainly sustained economic boom. The Americans had been living on for the last 20, 30 years. In the 1830s, a new party that's mainly against Jackson comes into play. The Democratic Republicans have become the Democrats, who can be traced to this day, I believe, to the modern Democratic Party. Again, don't quote me. And the opponents of Andrew Jackson become the Whigs. They call him King Andrew. They hate him with a passion. Um, Clay and Webster and Calhoun censure him in, I think, the Senate just in Congress over the Bank of the United States and him triggering a financial crisis. He's the only president in American history to be censured. So with that in mind, we move to another election. Um, the anti-Masons and the Nollies, everyone who hates Jackson, as well as proponents of Clay's American system, all get behind the Whig Party. 
Um, they're progressive conservatives, if that makes sense. They uh, really like the idea of active government. They're what we call modern progressives, but they are fundamentally, in that day, conservatives. They are here for really active government. They want a lot of reforms. They want infrastructure improvement instead of Western expansion. They want the market economy to be um, to be the main focus of the country's economic plan, I guess. Um, they say fundamentally the Democrats are the Democratic Party is corrupt, and that we are here for the common man. So in 1836, Andrew Jackson says, I'm tired, I'm going home, and he rams Martin Van Buren, who he considers to be Andrew Jackson Jr., into the Democratic nomination. The Whigs can't get behind a single candidate, even though they have an obvious candidate. He's William Henry, William Henry Harrison, a war hero from 1812. They can't get behind him, they won't do it. So they just say, let's hope that the vote splits and the House gets to choose. Um... Van Buren wins the pop by a little bit, the popular vote by a little bit, and he sweeps the Electoral College in essence. He wins it by a lot. Martin Van Buren, interesting fact, is the first president to be born post-1776. Um, he was short, not a lot like Andrew Jackson, and just not really a fundamental replacement for what the Democratic Party was hoping to see at the time. But, nonetheless, he was a president, which means it's time for air horns. So, Van Buren has inherited a lot of Jackson's problems. Canada's kind of rebelling, kind of. Texas wants to expand and maybe be independent, it's hard to know. And also, the economy is bad, but other than that, things are just A1 in the Van Buren administration. There's also this over-speculation and the wildcat banks and Western infrastructure is crumbling, and the bank war, and the species circular, and the failure of wheat, and the failure of the British, of the British, of the British banks, uh, which means that they fall and they call on their loans, which means that the U.S. is screwed over, and all of this just comes in on itself and creates a massive panic, the Panic of 1837. Um, the banks, including the pet, the pet banks with a lot of government money in it, they all collapse. Public land sales go way down. Commodities go down. Factories go down. The Whigs say the solution to this is improving the credit by using a tariff. Martin Van Buren, on the other hand, says, let's just make sure this doesn't happen again. He says, let's get U.S. money out of the banks with the divorce bill, an independent treasury, um, and it'll be just private reserves. It passes, then it's repealed, and then it's repassed. The passes was didn't it didn't mean anything. Just stop focusing on it. Going back to Texas, um, the United States kind of really wanted to have Texas way back when. It was their long lost love. They said we'd love to have you here, um, but they say you know what, Florida's more key to the plan of having the entire eastern seaboard. So they give the rights to Texas to Spain in exchange for Florida. And then Mexico becomes independent, and the whole thing is screwed up. Screwed up, screwed away, screwed up. Um, the Mexicans give Texas to the Catholic settler Stephen Austin. Um, Austin is mainly in it for the money and also doesn't like authority, but Austin, Texas, Austin, you see where it comes from. American settlers who come with Austin, they really don't like the Mexican government. A lot of them are convicts who 
are quote-unquote gone to Texas to avoid the law. They're hard to control. The Mexicans say, you're not going to have slaves. The Texans say, actually, yes, we are. Austin goes to jail. The rights of the citizens of Texas are revoked. The army, uh, the Mexican army, occupies it. In 1836, the Texans declare independence. Sam Houston is their commander-in-chief. Santa Ana comes. There's a massacre at the Alamo. Remember the Alamo? Um... They just kicked the butts of all the U.S. volunteers that came to help. Uh, a bunch of U.S. volunteers came to help. Should I establish that at the Goliad? U.S. opposition, though, of the citizens, public opinion goes way up. Americans keep on coming to help. And then Houston, Sam Houston, establishes Houston at San Anito. San Anito. Uh, we'll be right back after these messages from our sponsor. Pushing the A is brought to you by DJ Airhorn Sound Effect, as well as um, Staples Line Ruled Index Cards. If you need to rule something but you don't know where to stand, get in Line Ruled Index Cards. There's a hundred of them, and there are at least three by five. Also brought to you by the Princeton Review for AP U.S. History. When you want to get on five on the, the exam and also be a snob. Princeton Review, a proud sponsor of Pushing the A. As well as brought to you by the month of October. It's a calendar month of the year. And there are 12 months. So it's, it's got to be in the top 12 of months. October, we're in the top 12 of months. And we love Pushing the A. Back to you, Will. Thank you, Will, for those lovely ads that definitely weren't improv of the things that are surrounding my desk and my computer right about now. Uh, where we left off was Houston, has established Houston at San Janito. Uh, Texas is supposedly independent. Um, Sam Houston is the commander-in-chief. Remember the Alamo. Remember the Alamo. An American opinion of this is that the Texans should be independent from Mexico. So... Uh, there's about 1,300 Mexican soldiers to about 900 Texican soldiers. So Houston sneaks into a Mexican siesta, kills a lot of people, and then captures Santa Ana. So there are two treaties. The first is that the Mexican troops leave Texas, and the second is that the Rio Grande becomes the southwestern Texan border. The U.S. is been or the U.S. has been neutral on this issue um, during the war, at least officially in Washington. Now they don't really know what to do because they have two sovereign states, one that doesn't really care about them and they don't really care about, but another that directly connects to their country on a western and southern border standpoint. Public opinion, uh, bring them in, more the merrier. Jackson recognizes Texas as a state, but Texas wants slaves if they're to be admitted as a state. The North doesn't want them, so people just pause for... A couple of years there. The election of 1840, Van Buren, Democrats are like, okay, this guy, I guess, but no more after this. The Whigs, realizing their mistake from the last time, unite behind William Henry Harrison. Uh, people are always blaming the Democrats for the problem. Um, no one really knows what the Whigs or Harrison stand for, but they know they're not the Democrats. A newspaper columnist calls Harrison an old farmer in a log cabin who would be satisfied with a glass of apple cider or something, which he thinks is clever, and the 
uh, Wake Sync is brilliant, and they turn it into a rallying cry because it's the opposite of Andrew Jackson and Martin Van Buren. Martin Van Buren, who they claim to be aristocrats. Everyone's an aristocrat. This is all hyperbole. But um, the population of the United States has decided that it's time for a change, so William Henry Harrison wins the popular vote by little, the electoral by a lot, as seems to be the running theme in these few elections. The United States has chosen expansion as her economic vision over letting the market do its thing. Um, it also shows that populism in Democrat, populist Democrats are in, um, and aristocracy is out. So if you want to be elected president, you've got to be born in a log cabin, or you've got to at least somehow claim you are. Um, Daniel Webster, he definitely could have been the president of the United States in some alternate universe, but he was too aristocratic to win. He ran out of time. He just wasn't common enough. The big wigs of the country hate that this is what it's become, but they are no longer the majority and they no longer have all the voting power, so they can't do anything about it. In summary, William Henry Harrison is the new president of the United States, which means... All right, so the Whigs have won, and we finally have a real two-party system in the country. The Federalists sort of hung around for a little bit after Washington's term, but they never won anything, so it wasn't a real two-party system. Both of the parties, though, are republicanist. It isn't republicanist vision versus a non-republicanist vision. It's who can do it better. So the Democratic Party says states and individual liberties are the way to preserve democracy. The Whigs say means the means of society and the government to get to the ends are the right way to do it. It's restraint versus involvement. It's rights versus sort of reform. That's what elections become about, but both are fundamentally similar because both want to appeal to the masses. There's also a lot of intra-party horse trading, so inside the party horse trading. And also the parties aren't drawn on geographical lines, so they just have to compromise on slavery, but that's just for the moment. Okay, so in summary, Jackson has been elected after the corrupt bargain of 1824, which put John Quincy Adams in the White House. Um, the bank collapsed and then uncollapsed, and then mainly due to Jackson pulling out all the funds. Um, the Indian populations of the East were horrifically moved. The Bank of the United States is shut down, and then the economy crashes for other reasons. Then William Henry Harrison enters the office after Martin Van Buren. So that is it for chapter 13 of American Pageant, which has a name. Let's let's find it. American Pageant chapter 13. The Rise of a Mass Democracy. Oh, that's accurate. I like that. It's, it's, some of the chapter names are very weird, and the subheadings names are very weird. All right, we will move on to chapter 14 in approximately 25 seconds once I compile all these weird segments that this app makes me do and pick out some weird song to exit the show to and the show to music is what i'm saying is what's coming next so with that in mind it's time for it's time for music